Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Leslie Venice, who's the founder of Sales Team Builder. Uh, Leslie uses her expertise to partner with organizations that want to build inclusive, bias-centric sales a sales team. She's been a three times head of sales who has successfully sold SMB to C-suite enterprises, and she brings a unique perspective and diverse set of experiences uh, to businesses. A big thank to Shruti Kapoor from Wingman for the introduction. Uh, welcome to the show, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, big, big shout out to Shruti. She's uh, just an incredible founder uh, and, and woman to aspire to. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I, think I had great fun uh, speaking to Shruti and she's been so kind uh, to introduce me to some great, uh, awesome guests. Um, I, I, you know, I just wanted to uh, wanted to start off with, uh, you know, you've been a founder, but before that you've been into sales. How did you get in, in, into this world of sales? Yeah, well, I, I'm sort of of the opinion, Rohit, that everybody's in sales to some extent yeah. and everybody should just ab- embrace that you know, part, part of being alive is having to sell. Um, I didn't mean to become a sales professional. I certainly didn't mean to make it my career and not just a career, but like what I do is my, my day job, my side, like passion project, what I create content around. Um, I thought I would probably go into nonprofit management. Mm, Interesting. Because I, I really was driven to help and I was driven to make an impact. And if I'm being honest, I just didn't think that sales was a career that did those things. Like I didn't, I didn't see sales as a profession where you could help people, where you could make a positive impact on the world. But I got my first sales job shortly after moving to Chicago and just immediately fell in love with those opportunities to create meaningful connections and to be curious and to genuinely help people and you know, 15 years later, here we are. Interesting. And, uh, you, you know, you work with, uh, with a couple of companies like Carpathia Marketing and Marcus Evans Group. What, what were some, some of your learnings uh, when you're trying to scale up sales teams over there? Um, what were some of my learnings? So I spent most of my career, with the exception of two years when I was was at like a proper startup hired as employee number one, I spent most of my career working for British companies. And so a lot of what I was doing was either launching new products for them or launching their existing tested product in a new market, in the America's market. Um, so I think a lot of what I learned has revolved around like being very clear about who your buyer is and then putting them at the center of what you do. And, and I think the default, and I'm sure that you've seen this, your listeners have felt this when they've gotten sales outreach that the seller or the company or the product is very much at the center of the messaging. And that doesn't feel good. People, people don't like that. It feels disingenuous. So really trying to turn that old model on its head um, and, and really try to keep the buyer at the center of the motions we're building and the copy we're creating, the way we're communicating. Interesting. You, you, you were talking about, you know, you define who's, who's, your, who's your buyer and you, you nail down on your, you know, the, the customer profile. But, uh, but is it possible, especially for a starter to, to 
reach out to multiple customers uh, in order to win or or do you have, or, or do you think that you know one should just focus on one icp and just focus on that and winning it and then moving on to other uh customer friends yeah the old like uh, gtm dilemma of pick a lane right <laughs> yeah um so i think that while you are figuring out product market fit it's essential that you're testing it with various icps right because you you don't ultimately know who your ideal buyer is going to be. And without testing it, you are missing out on that opportunity to hear the feedback that might give you the idea to make the product pivot that takes you from like a ho-hum product to something that the market is really clamoring for. So there's there's certainly a, a point in standing up those new teams and standing up new companies where I think the, the testing, the iteration, the, um, you know, being maybe a, a bit loose with who you're reaching out to is fine, but you have to do that with the clear goal in mind of identifying which of these is truly going to be the person that buys fastest, buys at the highest price point, has maybe a land and expand opportunity, is going to be able to refer you to other, like whatever those, those pieces uh, of, you know, further revenue generation are. Got it. I, I understand. And uh, you know, especially when you you know starting to to scale up your your sales team, uh, you look at you know building a a sales playbook and then figuring out the the CRM tool and then you know really trying to scale it up. Uh, how would you define a sales playbook and and who do you think should create it? Do you think a founder should create it or the head of sales team? Wow, that's a really contentious question. I'm going to make somebody mad no matter what, what I answer. Um, okay, so here's what I've seen to be true the greatest number of the time. Uh, often the founder closes those essential first customers, right? You know, that 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 goal of getting your first 10 paying customers, that's an important one. And, and most often that's from a founder-led sales model. The reality of that is that most of those are coming from the network, coming from referrals. They're not like the, the sort of warm inbound or cold leads. And the founder, when he, when they are negotiating those sales, um, has full control over the product roadmap and pricing. Right. So there's, there's a lot of flexibility there that I think can often put the founder at a disadvantage when it comes to creating the playbook because they probably did something a little bit different for each of those sales. So I think it's really important for the founder in partnership with the, the first AEs they bring on with that head of sales, that head of marketing, who, you know, whoever it is to start laying down those foundations, but to also be really open to the playbook growing as the organization grows and as they learn more about what works, what doesn't work and what their, you know, what their buyers and what their customers really want. Mm, got it. Got it. And, uh, and you talked about AEs and so, uh, and the sales reps, you know, if they, if they, uh, understand, you know, how, how to, how, how to do the pitching, looking at the, at the sales playbook, you know, how would you, uh, how can they start getting the customers uh, potential customers on the call in the, in the very first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think you actually bring up uh, an important point that's worth focusing on. Uh, I always recommend that folks hire AEs before they hire their head of sales. Right. And I know often that can be a bit counterintuitive that founders think, well, I need a head of the department 
Um, but I'm a much bigger fan of, of starting with maybe a full cycle AE that's sort of a jack of all trades person. You hire them on the understanding that once you ask them to silo or niche down, they're, they're probably going to move on. But it's, it's still a solid first hire to build a team around while you get ready to bring in that first sales manager or first, first head of sales. But to your question, how do those first AEs, SDRs get people to say yes to them? Yeah. I think that it's about giving them a really, what is in it for them? So it, it can't be those product-led pitches. It can't be the feature dump. It really has to be, you've gone on that journey from um, testing different ICPs. You've sort of picked your lane. This is where you really feel confident. You, you know, want to commit to at least literally see if, if you know, that's the, the ICP that's going to be your, your ongoing um, target persona. And you have to dig deep to understand what their challenges are, what's going on in their world, what keeps them up at night, what, you know, what those big opportunities are that they want, you know, want to grasp that are on the horizon. And that's what needs to be the crux of your outreach. And yes, you have a product or solution that can ultimately solve for some of that. But I think lead with the challenge and the opportunity that is to your customer. And then once you get them on the phone, dig deeper. And only then do you come in just to share why your product or service can solve them. Um, so I think it, like the, the buyer centricity that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation is really especially critical to getting those first customers on board when you might not have the testimonials or case studies to sort of like have the proof in the pudding. Mm, interesting. And uh and are there any right sort of questions or the wrong questions uh, that, you know, a lot of, uh, let, let's talk about the right questions, you know, what should be the right sort of questions uh, which uh, a sales rep should ask uh, and, you know, uh, uh, and then we can talk about the wrong sort of questions. Ooh, I feel like all questions are good questions. Like if, if you are a salesperson that is on the phone and you are asking questions and then you are zipping your lip, so that you can listen, actively listen to the responses and then ask an even better question off the back of, of what your prospect has shared, you're on the right track. Like you're doing better than probably 90% of the other sales professionals out there. Um, but some of my favorite questions that that just don't seem to ever fail me, regardless of, of you know who I'm selling into, are things like, tell me more, help me understand. What does that mean at your company? Just those, those open-ended questions where I'm not trying to lead or influence them in any direction. I'm not putting my own maybe assumptions on them. I'm just giving them the floor and that opportunity to share what, you know, what they feel comfortable sharing, what, you know, what, uh, what is going to give me the, the insight later to be able to match my offering to their exact needs so that I don't feel compelled to do that generic pitch or that feature done. Hmm. Got it. And I would not be asking questions would be like the wrong thing to do, I assume. Yeah, I think that's fair. Just not asking questions is the wrong thing to do. Um, or asking questions that are like maybe manipulative. Uh -oh. I would... I, I think our buyers are smart. They're smarter now than they've ever been before. Yeah. So, um, you know, maybe maybe question some of those old school sales 
mm. techniques. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And 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 what do you think in in your view has been what the best sales reps do to feed to take the feedback from the customer and then share it with the customer success and product teams? What's been the best process that you've seen with your sales rep tool? I'm not sure I've ever seen a best. <laughs> I think that's a that's a really hard process to get right. Um, teams that are running, so I'm sure everybody on the the pod has heard like the revenue alignment or rev ops titles that are are, are a lot more prevalent in the past few years. And so what I've seen is that um, teams who are less siloed tend to have more open lines of communication. Some of the best stuff I've seen is literally just dropping it in Slack so that your people are kind of getting that like that real time. Um, Actually, the company I I worked at uh, most recently before I started doing sales team builder, they were really putting effort into uh, creating a knowledge database in Salesforce so that it was easily searchable to go back and see the feedback or the success stories or the challenge, whatever it was. Um, so I, I would have to admit, I don't know, I think I've ever seen a perfect process, but the companies that seem to be doing best at it are those that have the most alignment across the commercial function. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing instructions and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Got it. And, you know, you, you talked about sales team builder, you know, uh, we, we didn't touch touch, uh, touch base on that, but, uh, but, but why, why did you go about, you know, you, even though you've been a great operator, why did you want to uh, build sales team builder and who, whom are you targeting over there? How are you helping out startups? Yeah, I don't. I never had the vision of being a full-time founder, which is a really funny thing to say as a full-time founder and solopreneur. But I, so uh, about six years ago, I joined a startup as employee number one. So yeah. created the MVP, did the whole GTM, made it a profitable model. Um, and it was amazing. It was so hard. It was the hardest job I've ever had, but it was it was amazing. Um, I realized I loved it. I realized I had a, a passion for working with companies at that particular stage where they are uh, both creating the foundations as well as thinking about those like big ideas that will be fundamental to the future success of the company. Um, but, but even then, I didn't see myself as a founder, like supporting other founders, I went on and got another, you know, corporate head of of sales job, and I had launched Sales Team Builder. Like I created the LLC, but I was just doing it as a passion project and donating my time to help mostly other, uh, like women and, and people of color, find their voice in sales. And then I decided in 2021, yeah, at the beginning of 2021, that I was ready for my next challenge. And I started interviewing with Seed Series A organizations that were going to hire their first head of sales. And I I kind of had this epiphany moment where I thought, why am I trying so hard to work for another founder and make them a bunch of money? 
when I already know I can, can build the motion, like I've already done it as employee number one, why would I not just do it for myself? So that was one piece of it. And then I had this crazy experience where I got offered a job, uh, a 460K job, like a life-changing amount of money sort of gig on a Friday. And on Saturday, I got a yes for the biggest client that I've ever had for sales team builder. And in that 24 hours, I realized I did not have the bandwidth to do both and I would have to make a choice. And when I heard the way I talked about the corporate gig, it was, oh, you know, it'd be great to have another VP of sales title. It'd be the responsible thing to do financially. It was so logic-based. And when I talked about the client for sales team builder, I was so excited about what we were going to build. And it was, it became immediately clear that I had to follow my passion instead of just the title and the money. So I quit corporate and became a full-time, but it was like all kind of by accident. No, I, I, I love that. I love that story. And uh, are you still focusing on, uh, you know, uh, uh, startups, which are basically say, or, you know, who, who was your target audience there? I am. Yeah. I love coming in and helping folks build repeatable processes. Um, I love working with founders when they're at the point where they do have that proven business model, they have that product market fit and they're jazzed to scale. And I have to come in and be a bit of the voice of reason to be like, scaling's awesome. Can't wait. But first, let's create those strong foundations that are going to set you up for future success. So um, I, I'm a process person. I love creating like the A to the B to the C and then figuring out what works and carrying it forward and iterating. Um, so it's it's a lot of fun to get my hands in the clay with, with those uh, sort of stations. And then I still do. I have a, a, a like an interactive coaching workshop series that I run. So I still run that for a lot of big corporate clients um, because they have a lot more money. Uh, so it, it creates a nice balance. I get to be in the startup world. I get to be in the corporate world. I get to pay my mortgage. You know, it's, I'm, yeah. I'm doing it all. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I totally, totally, uh, uh, I love that story. And, uh, I, I want to talk about pr- pricing, you know, especially for early stage startups. Uh, how would you look at, you know, pricing, cus- uh, customers, what price should, you know, customers pay in the early days? Uh, if it's not about ARR, you know, what, what should teams be optimizing for? Mm, um, I feel like that is a trick question um, because it's going to change from like one to 10 to 10 to 50 to feel like it's, it's going to constantly change. Um, I actually work. So I, I certainly work with plenty of SaaS companies, but I actually work with a lot of um, agencies and like research companies who are running subscription models, but usually like ARR versus MRR, like not mm. the SaaS model. Um so I, I found that sometimes to be a little bit more interesting in terms of pricing because it's a lot easier for them to leave those engagements because they don't have to pivot to a completely new software and do a full new real rollout and, and all of that. Um, so I, I think I often give them the same advice that my mentors gave to me when I started thinking about my pricing, which was price on the value that you're going to deliver. So when we think about the insights that they're going to share, you know, we're going to be able to 3x because of this efficiency or whatever it is, think about what that means in real dollars to the organization that you're serving. 
and base your pricing off of that. If you're like the, the agency consulting route, I think that's pretty compelling. Um, you know, on the SaaS side, so maybe it would be interesting to even hear your take on this. I've been having a lot of conversations about how to run a PLG and an enterprise model side by side. Right. I, I think that is a really interesting conversation because you're running the freemium model with the, like the hope to land and expand. Um, but you have to figure out how to tier from like freemium to what's that first jump they can go up to that make them want to stick around. And then how big of a, a price differentiator should there be from that maybe like SMB sort of mid-market price point to your enterprise price point where it has the full list of capabilities um, offered. I don't, I don't have a clear answer because I feel like every single person I've worked with, it's been like we've done something sort of, sort of different. Um, but I think my advice would be you want to attract people to your highest price point. Mm. So make it very clear why that price point is worth so much more and like make sure that there is a big jump um, so that it's like, it, it's the, like the Veblum curve, like people are attracted to that higher price point because obviously if they're paying more, there's something extra sexy about that, that product and the value that they're going to get. Mm, interesting. And, uh, and especially on, you, you mentioned about price tiers, but, uh, but would you, would, uh, would you look at, uh, you know, taking the, uh, uh, taking the, uh, the lowest price, uh, pricing there to, to get a company on board, or would you, would you, uh, you know, look at, you know, what are the values, what are the benefits being offered by, uh, by, uh, by more expensive pricing there, uh, to entice a company on board? I feel like it depends what market they're playing into. So if it's like a well-established market, you're going to have to go out and see what your competitors are charging. And then right. you're going to have to decide where you, like, do you want to be the low cost offering? Do you want to be the premium offering? Are you going to play the middle ground? So I think a, in, in a saturator, at least a well-established market, your, your pricing to a huge extent is going to be dictated back to you based on what your competitors are doing and, and where you want to rank in that market. Um, if you are trying to be like create a brand new category, that's a bit different. And I have to admit that's like that, I wouldn't say as a core area of expertise for me is like pricing while you're creating a brand new category. So I don't want to give people bad advice. But I, but that that's sort of where my thinking went. Like, are you in an established cat category, or you need to look externally? Are you not in an established category? Then maybe you get that privilege of trying to decipher how much value you're bringing to the organization and in real dollars for them, and then you work backwards and figure out what that means and how much you can reasonably charge that gets them to not just come in the door, but gets them to stick with you year after year. Mm, okay, got it. So it depends on the market, uh, fair enough. And um, and I, I want to talk about hiring. You know, wh what do you think is the right structure uh, for all new sales hires to be to be onboarded uh, on the team? Oh my gosh, the, these are these are tough questions. <laughs> I, had, I did not get a list of these questions beforehand, <laughs> so you're really putting me on the spot here. Um, 
man, are like hiring AEs or SDRs or CSMs or a mix or? Um, so, you know, especially SDRs and AEs, uh, you know, what, what should be the right structure? Uh, you know, would, what, what would be the mix of, uh, you know, commission and, and you know, fixed base structure, base structure would you, yeah. uh, would you want to give them? Um, so if you're bringing on AEs at an early stage startup, I believe that there has to be an equity play in there for them. Yeah. I mean, like often it's because you simply can't afford to pay them the base that they would make if they didn't go to an early stage startup. So I think it has to be a combination of like base plus commission plus equity. Um, what I have seen is folks trying to pay commission only. I think that is shameful. Yeah. I, I hope I'm not calling out anybody that's listening right now, but if they, I am, like, you need to go look in the mirror and maybe have a bit of a gut check. Um, I think it's like deeply inappropriate to ask people, salespeople especially get this a lot. They're being asked to work for free. I yeah. just, we wouldn't do it to other business units. We're not doing that to our CFO or to our product team. Why would we do that to our sales professionals who are the revenue backbone of our organization? Um, so make sure that there is a, a base to create some of that psychological safety and make sure that there is an equity play so that they are in it to win it with you in, in the long run. And then some sort of variable, obviously, based on, on what they're bringing in the door. Um, even for SDRs, I, I mean, you could toy around with equity. I don't think it's as necessary as it is for your AEs. Um, but I, you know, I still think there needs to be a strong mix of base plus variable so that there is that element of psychological safety. I have seen organizations have some success with having the actual like commission variable be a little bit lower so that there is a bonus at the end of the year based on company performance so that the OTE package is still very attractive and competitive, but they aren't having to have as many immediate payouts or they can tie more closely tie the payouts to the overall success of the organization. Um, so those are a couple of things I've seen work slash a real call out for anybody that's trying to not pay their salespeople. <laughs> yeah, so, very, very well put, uh, you know, put down by you. And, uh, you, you know, uh, you've been a very successful, you know, you know salesperson, but uh, I had a question. Why, why do you think there's so, uh, so few women sales uh, leaders, especially the, the it's, it looks like a, it's a male-dominated field. Why is there so few women who get into the sales field? Uh, what is mm -hmm. what, what do you think, in your view, is uh, you know we have so 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 few women uh, who don't want to you know work in the, in this field? Yeah, um, it is very male-dominated. It's also very dominated by white people. So we in sales just kind of have a general void of otherness of anybody that isn't like an able-bodied cishet white male. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not just uh, women. I think there are a lot of folks who are maybe underestimated in terms of their potential to, to win, to be successful in sales. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about this. So I will try really hard to not go down a rabbit Whole. Um, but one of the reasons Rohit is that it's a really hateful place to be a woman. Like it's, mm. it's a very, very toxic place. Um, I can't even tell you how many times I have been sexually harassed, 
I had to leave a job after six months because I had a supervisor that so aggressively verbally abused me and sexually harassed me that I just had to leave without another job lined up. Um, And what's terrible about that is that I'm not the exception. Like that wasn't some weird one-off, like all women that I speak to have had at least one circumstance of being sexually harassed by their male supervisor or male colleagues. Um, So I think a huge part of it is that it is very toxic. We're working on it. Like it's, it's worth the, the, the evolution that's happening. Um, but the reality is that it's not been a safe place for women to work. Um, and then there are also some structural issues that just make sales a really hard profession. If you think about an average, um, compensation package being a 50, 50 split, uh, base plus commission, uh, in places like America, where there is not any mandatory maternity leave that's paid. If a woman wants to leave the workforce for any amount of time to care for their child, they're taking a 50% pay cut. Like that's, that's significant. I don't know that many people that can just take a 50% pay cut and not, not feel the, the, the hurt of it. Um, and will probably like lose a bunch of their territory and lose their entire pipeline. Like there's some, some serious, I just think like structural things that make it very difficult for women to see sales as a feasible or like lucrative career path. And then worse, when women do join the profession, what they're greeted by is often um, a very unsafe work environment. Um, So yeah, it makes it, it makes it tough. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives Increase the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. Yeah, no, it's, it's very sad to know that you know, women go through uh, you know, sexual harassment. Uh, it's, it's really bad. Um, you know, it's the onus is on us to to make sure you know we have diversity in every field, in every you know job, um, and, and there's there's a lot we need to do. Um, well, and yeah. I'm sure you saw the the data that came out earlier this year from um, PitchBook, and then I think it was like validated by Crunchbase that in 2021, only two percent of VC funding went to yep. women only funded companies. And then even if the co-founder was a man, it was still only like 18%. Like it, the numbers were mm-hmm. shocking. And we see a lot of those same numbers in sales, uh, like the the newest numbers on C-suite representation, like C- sales C-suite, right? So CCO, CSO, CRO roles um, puts representation of women in the single digits. So there's, I think there's like a representation piece as well. If we're not seeing ourselves as founders, if we're not seeing ourselves as chief revenue officers, it, I think it does make the role slightly harder to imagine and aspire towards. Mm, got it. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I heard that, you know, Serena Williams is getting the VC because she was shocked to know that there's just 2% considering that, you know, she's a, she's a top three or top four uh, uh, you know, uh, she has made most most money in the in the tennis. So she was, uh, she she really wants to connect. And I think uh, you need more women leaders, more women entrepreneurs, more women founders. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the license master needs more women <laughs> guests on the show, uh, so that you know we have more 
uh, you know, stories to talk about. Uh, and, you know, you, you did start, uh, you uh, talked about that you were working with a lot of British startups who want to launch in, in, in the U.S. Um, how, can, how can somebody be a fractional salesperson? Um, you know, uh, I, I didn't talk about it earlier, but, uh, you know, we both are members of Pavilion and, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of fractional um, work which happens for, uh, say, for, for for a marketing role or for a financial role. But can can they be a fractional salesperson? Uh, and how how can somebody work? Somebody uh, like a British or Indian startup? How can they launch in in uh, in say America and you know hire a, a sales leader? Yeah. Um- Really, really good question. Um, shout out to Pavilion. Shout out to Sam Jacobs. Um, love being part of that community. Love our entire like sales community. Um, so maybe two thoughts on that. One, when I see companies coming over, um, like cer- like certainly you see it. Like I feel like some of the worst perpetrators are honestly companies coming from like the UK, Singapore, Australia, where they've been used to doing business in English as their first language. Mm. And they feel like they can then as a result, just drag and drop everything right over to the Americas. Um, But there's a much different personality going on over here. So I think like one of the calls to action I would give folks if they're trying to make that leap is just sense check your language from like with a native, like uh, we, I think we have a lot less flowery language. A lot of the time we're a little bit like, I don't want to say curt, but like a lot more to the point. Um, And so some of those, those niceties or some of those rapport builders that are so essential to have in other cultures, they really hurt your open and reply rates in this market. Um, and even little things like changing your like your S's to Z's, that the, they're like un, like little things, but I think often the importance of making those small changes is underestimated, and it kind of puts people two steps back before they can get that one step forward. And maybe the person to sense check that with is a fractional leader. Um, I think you need to decide if you're looking to hire a America's based fractional leader, what kind you want. Um, you can have somebody that is like really acting as that extension of your team. So they're doing day-to-day management of your staff. Maybe they're, you know, even like in your CRM monitoring your KPIs, they're, you know, having PIP conversations. So you can have a sale, a fractional sales leader that is, very, very involved, but you can also dial back a bit uh, from that and just leverage fractional leaders to say, help you set up your tech stack or understand what tech stack is right for you. And maybe that's the type of gig you use them for, or maybe they just come in and help build that playbook. Um, So, you know, I also think you can hire those fractional leaders more as a, a very defined gig. This is the one thing I want this expert to help me with instead of just the more traditional, like you have to come in and manage my team model. Uh, got it. Interesting. And uh, you've also uh, been a writer uh, and you've authored, co-authored a book called Heels to Deals, How Women Are Dominating in B2B Sales, uh, along with Shruti, who's been a past guest, uh, which is launching on November 10th. Uh, so, you know, uh, talk more about the book. What what made you write the book, and uh, and uh, you know how, what was your entire journey of you know writing the book along with Shruti and other authors? Yeah, 
Um, it's been such an honor to, to be part of that group of co-authors. I, I mean, it really is a group of 30 women who are um, just the definition of what it means to be a true professional in sales. Um, and they're folks that really lead with the skills that I think are the future of scale sales. So things like active listening and curiosity and empathy. So it's it's a, a really incredible um, group of women. The book itself really inspirational. I like so many things in my life. Rohit, this is a real a real trend. It just sort of happened. I kind of fell into it. Um, and I'm a person that likes to say yes. If, if I'm curious and something seems exciting, it seems like it would spark joy in my life. I just, I like to lean in. Um, so I had the opportunity to both share a bit of my story of what it's been like to be a, a woman in, in, you know, enterprise sales for 15 years. Um, and also hopefully lead some words of inspiration for our next generation of sales professionals. Mm, super interesting. We'll we'll put that in the show notes and and I quickly want to the top three. What's your favorite business book? Oh my gosh, favorite business book. That's so. I have to go with Art and Negotiation. I don't. Uh, that's a hobby. I love love that book. Got it. We'll, we'll put that in, in the in the show notes. And you know, if you could go back in time when you uh, when you started uh, uh, working on sales team builder, what is the one thing you would have focused on or or done anything differently? What's the one thing I would have focused on? Um, I had the incredible privilege of of gearing up before I went live as a full-time founder. But I think like my advice for other people who are thinking about going all in on the entrepreneurial journey, before you quit your day job, like get your tech stack sort, like get the basics sorted because I think it's easy. This is such a tactical piece of advice, but I think it's so easy to underestimate how much time it takes to like set up your HubSpot and your FreshBooks and your this tool and your that tool. So get that clarity of like what the vision of is of your company is, and then get your tech stack set up, and right. then quit your day job. Got it. Yeah, no, absolutely love that advice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, do, you, do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Oh my gosh, Reggie.ai. Um, full disclosure, I'm on their advisory board, but I'm also obsessed with the tool. It's an AI tool, tool for writing cold copy. Um, and when I first met with the founder, I, like, I think I was borderline rude to him because I so deeply did not believe that what they had was any good. Fast forward six months, I'm on the board. That one's really cool. Um, and I think like generally things like there's another tool called lavender that's very similar. Yeah. Okay. You, you're nodding your head. You recognize that one. Um, I think those are such easy tools for everybody to use. You don't even have to be in sales. You can be in marketing. You can be in, uh, you know, you can be a founder. You can only be doing internal comms, um, but they help you communicate better. And we all need that. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, shout out to uh, the London Pavilion event, which happened and shout out to Jordan who told me about Lavender. So I just started using Lavender and that's why I was nodding because I had no idea about Lavender and he was kind enough to share it with me. I'm going to look at Reggie as well, but these are, I think, really interesting tools for, for salespeople. We're going to put that in the show notes. And, uh, and let's say, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Sales Team Builder? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn. I'm super active on LinkedIn, post there daily um, and pretty available to answer questions from people as well. Um, I also am on TikTok. 
So I create daily on TikTok. Well, I wouldn't say daily. I create on TikTok at uh, sales tips talk. Um, but if you're more into video content, you can find me there. Awesome. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Lissy, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.